Yeah, so last week we, um, so this is, th the class is called the story of redemption and it's a look at all of the covenants in the Bible. So in 10 weeks we're going to try to put the entire Bible together. Um, easy, right? So that, that is the challenge uh, of this course, of this class, is that uh, we are really trying to make sense of the entirety of Scripture, right? Um, covenants really appear throughout all of Scripture, and it drives the, the narrative, the story of Scripture from, from beginning to end. Um, so we're just doing what we can to summarize each one briefly each week, and, and then paint the picture at the end, tying them all together and seeing how they all fit. Uh, so we started last week in the Garden of Eden, right, and showed um, what God uh, set Adam up, the task that he set him up in the Garden of Eden, and that was to uh, we saw that the, the Garden of Eden was actually a temple, a place where God dwelt. And as a temple, it had to be guarded and protected, just like the temple in Israel. Uh, right? Anybody in, in Israel who came in who was unholy uh, was to be put to death. It was a very serious matter. And the Garden of Eden, as a dwelling place of God, likewise had to be protected and garden, guarded. And that was uh, largely Adam's task. Um, to work it and keep it has this connotation of guarding and protecting. And it said that he also had the task of subduing the earth. So we talked about what that might mean. And uh, we saw that um, when the serpent entered the garden, that was an excellent example of what it meant for Adam to subdue the world. Right? He should have subdued that serpent, um, the lying serpent, uh, and exercised dominion over that, cast him out of the garden, but he did not. He trusted in his own wisdom and ate from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. And that was disaster for the world. As representative of creation, he brought a curse to creation and all those who were in him. So that's all of us. All of us who descended from Adam uh, were cursed. And he handed over his dominion as king to Satan. And Satan became god of this world, king and ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And as, as we'll uh, look here at a temptation that he offers Christ regarding the kingdoms of this world, as a result of Adam's fall, he, he handed over that dominion to Satan and in, in so doing enslaved all of humanity to Satan, uh, bound to do his will to sin and to not please God. So that's where we, uh, that's where we left off last week. And uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll dive into this week. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us to, to gather together, to set aside our uh, daily labor, Lord, our, our labor on this earth, to uh, uniquely set aside our time to set our mind on the things that are above, Lord. We ask you bless our time here together, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we would um, understand your word correctly, you would guard us from error and lead us into truth, that you would... Um, the Spirit would use the Word to pierce into our souls and, and renew our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, a uh, preface from last week was, this is a result of my study, uh, of what I've done over the years. These are the conclusions I've come to. You might not, uh, you might not end up agreeing with me in the end, and that's fine. Uh, I hope that there's a lot of questions and back and forth here. This isn't meant to just be a, a monologue with me up here, with you taking notes. Anything that comes up as I'm going through, feel free to raise your hand. Um, if it's, if it's um, clarification, that kind of type of stuff is great. Um, um, yeah, any, any questions, comments you have, feel free to jump in at any time. So this week, we are going to be looking at the New Covenant. So we're kind of skipping over the whole Bible. We started with Genesis 1 through 3, and now we're skipping all the way to the New Testament. It's not because all the other stuff doesn't matter, but I want to set a clear, clear contrast here between Adam and Christ. And there's a reason for that, as, as we'll see in the passages here today. Um, that's the stark contrast that we want to see uh, and, the, and the parallels that we want to see between those two. Those are the two covenants that determine uh, man's eternal state. Right, we looked last week that God had offered Adam this eternal rest, this eternal life that he could have attained, that he fail, fell from. He, he failed to attain the glory of God. Um, and and this, the second Adam, the last Adam, Christ, comes to uh, accomplish that eternal rest, that eternal life. And so these are the two covenants that, that um, determine 
our eternal state. The other covenants that we'll look at deal with a variety of other things, but they don't ultimately determine one's eternal, eternal state. So that's why we're setting these two in contrast here, week one and week two. And then after this week, we're gonna go back to Noah and then work our way through back again to the new covenant. We'll take a second look at the new covenant in light of all of those later. So we're not gonna cover everything about the new covenant here. That could be you know, another 10 week class in and of itself. All of these could be. So we are going to look at the new covenant. And so immediately after uh, we left off last week with the fall and the curse of mankind, but God didn't leave Adam and Eve in that state. Um, we read immediately in Genesis 3 that God comes and, and he, he has a word for Adam. He has a word for Eve in terms of punishment, but he also has a word for the serpent. And this is a curse of the serpent, but it's actually a, a promise to the sons and daughters of Adam in the form of a curse of the serpent. So Genesis 3.14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. That's just a, a Greek meaning the first gospel, the first proclamation of good news. Anybody have any idea why? Why would this be the first proclamation of the gospel? First time when God is kind of foretelling that he's going to send his son into the world. Exactly. <coughs> and what's he going to do to the serpent here? Crush his head. There you go. It is a promise that uh, he will be wounded in the process, but he will ultimately crush and defeat Satan. And so is, there is this hope from the very beginning of the fall, there is this hope that in the future, someone will come to reverse this curse. It's interesting if you read um, through the first kind of four, five, six uh, chapters in Genesis, you can see there's, there's this oral tradition passed down from Adam. There's this idea of hope. We'll look at it later, but Noah, uh, his word sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. And they talk about this will be the one that will give us rest. You know, there's this, there's this looking forward to the one who will give us rest. Now, when the, um, when the New Testament talks about Christ, it interestingly refers to him as uh, the second Adam, as it compares him to Adam. As Adam did this, Christ did this. So it sets the two of them up. We're going to look at a few passages here. Um, and the, the first few passages here just set up that, that when Christ came into the world, he had a task, he had a mission, just like Adam had. Uh, God gave him work to do. God gave him things to do. It wasn't just he was born and wandering around, observing, figuring out what he wanted to do. God gave him a mission. He gave him commandments uh, to fulfill. John 10, 17 said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Right, this charge, this mission, this task I have received from my Father. What is that task? It's specifically to lay down his life. This was part of the mission. Unlike Adam, Christ came with a mission to die. That was part of his task. Um, part of the we could say part of the covenant that he was in, part of the arrangement that he had. Um, by the way, if I am, am not speaking loud enough, please let me know. Just do, uh, you know, hold your uh, hand up to your ear. Let me know if you guys can't hear me in the back. I'll, I'll speak louder. I was a little quiet last week. I apologize. So just let me know and I'll turn the volume up. Uh, John 12 likewise says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Right, so this, this echoes uh, Adam. Right? He was created as the image of God, as the Son of God, to be God's representative on earth. And he was supposed to represent God on earth like, like Jesus is doing here. 
He was to take God's word and proclaim it where he went. Uh, and Jesus is saying, this is what he does. And he says, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. He is leaning on the Father in the Spirit. He is dependent upon him as Adam should have been but was not. John 14, 30 says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So the note there is like Adam, Jesus was given a task to perform obediently. And like Adam, Satan intervened. Satan wanted to thwart this. And he tempted Jesus just as he tempted Adam. There are three temptations there in the wilderness. We won't go through all of them. Um, but it's, Jesus' temptation is, is heightened, much more heightened than, than Adam's was. Adam's was in a garden, right, with everything he could want. Um, he was there with God with all the trees and the fruit and everything. And Jesus went and fasted for 40 days in the wilderness with no one and nothing uh, but the Spirit and the angels ministering to him. And this is where Satan came and tempted him. Uh, one of his temptations said, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, like Adam, Jesus was tempted by Satan, but his response was very different. His response was what we talked about last week. What Adam should have done is he should have gone to the Father. He should have gone to God and said, there's this, if he, didn't, if he didn't understand, if he didn't know, he should have gone to the Father and said, there's this creature in the garden speaking lies, causing confusion, what should I do? And what Jesus does in return to Satan's temptation is he, he looks to God's word. He says, what has God said to get him out of this situation, to help him cut through Satan's lies? Is he looked to God's word and said, you're wrong because it's contrary to what God said. And he resisted Satan's temptation by the word of God. And one more here, Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, an uh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Interesting contrast there between those two, right? Satan offered Jesus uh, to be ruler over the kingdoms of this world, right? And Jesus turned it down. And we see here that in turning it down and humbling himself and being obedient to the Father, the Father exalted him above all the kingdoms of the world, right? He, he got that kingship, that dominion that Satan offered and much greater than what Satan had to offer uh, by resisting Satan and, and obeying the Father. So unlike Adam, Jesus' mission included his death. Because he was obedient even to the point of death, he received the reward and was raised from the dead. So I'll pause there. Any comments, questions so far? I don't want to go through too quickly. We've got a fair amount of pages, but... Um, We'll look at the next one. This, uh, the next two were from the, um, uh, I, I mentioned you know, during the week to try to read a couple passages. So uh, these next couple are from that. Romans uh, 5, uh, 15 there. Does anybody want to read those uh, paragraphs? <coughs> I will. Thank you. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death <coughs> reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you. So we see here a strong parallel and contrast between Adam and Christ. Right? They both acted as representatives. They weren't just acting for themselves. Um, but they were acting on behalf of uh, other people as representatives. So Adam, in a negative sense, right, his one trespass, his one sin, brought condemnation to all who were in him. Do you have a question? Yeah. It, yeah. We started at 15, but the homework was starting at 12. Yeah, if, yeah, I just, uh, go for it. Was there something uh, from 12? Well, it talks about, like, that sin was in the world before the <laughs> law was given, uh -huh. but that no one was really accountable for it since there was no law. Yeah. But that there was still death. Yeah. We can a little bit. That's kind of why I skipped over it because okay. it'll it'll lead down a big rabbit hole. Um, but it's a yes, it's a good question. So uh, there was no law in the sense that um, there was no law revealed on Mount Sinai in writing in the Ten Commandments with Moses. Um, Paul talks about previously in Romans, Romans one and two. He really establishes well, well the reason why Gentiles are accountable. It's that even though there wasn't a revealed written law like the Israelites had, there was still a law that they knew in their conscience, in their heart. It was revealed innately within them. Um, he says they, know, they knew who God is. They know who God is, what he requires of them, but they suppress and distort that. Um, Roman, the second half of Romans 1 would be a good one to review there. And then he goes into Romans 2 and talks about how uh, even the Gentiles um, show when they... When they um, when they do good things, it shows that they have the work of the law written on their heart, in their conscience, uh, that they, they have this understanding of what God requires, even though it wasn't clearly revealed as it was to Israel. Um, and part of the reason it was revealed to Israel and recorded for us here is because of that suppression and, and distortion of that, that uh, knowledge that we have within us. Uh, we need it more clearly revealed. It was much clearer to Adam in the garden than it is uh, to the world now because of all of those years of suppression and, and denying um, what God has revealed about himself. So does that kind of touch on it? It's, it's, a, it's a quick one, but... Um, and there, there technically though was one law given, right? A command of don't eat of the tree. There, uh, there was one uh, that recorded in Genesis, right? The, uh, a verbal command regarding that tree. Um, but if we, if we start to think about it, they, as, as Paul talks about here and elsewhere, um, uh, and other pastors, Ecclesiastes, God made man upright, right? But he sought out many schemes. Uh, God put eternity in our hearts, right? There, there was one command that he um, stated verbally, but behind that, the backdrop of that one command was this internal innate knowledge of who God is, um, telling them, well, why should I listen to this? this person telling me not to eat from this tree? Well, because they had a knowledge of who God is and who they are in relationship to God and what he requires. And You shall have no other gods before me. You know, that was something Adam knew um, in addition to just this one command. That's a good question. And there's like, that's one of the many, many, many rabbit holes that this conversation will take us down. And so it, it, there's, uh, in the email, I sent out a, a link to a Telegram chat if anybody wants to jump in there and you can dive in if there's stuff we don't have time to cover here, and I can send resources and, and stuff like that, or feel free to email as well. Yes? Can you repeat the question? Sometimes we can't. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> she was talking about um, in, the, in the assigned reading, I started a little bit earlier in Romans 5, back at verse 12. And it was talking there about um, um, the, that there was death and sin before before the law was given, and how does that work, and that type of thing. So that's that's what we were trying to trying to address um, briefly. But thank you. I, I will uh, remind me. I'll try to repeat the, the questions as they come in. Um, so the point here is that Adam and and Jesus both represented people. They weren't work, working 
uh, on their own behalf, but they were representing other people. So Adam's towards death, Jesus towards life. Um, and uh, last week we looked at the, the passages in Romans and elsewhere talking about a, a judgment based on works, right? To the one who works, uh, they will be given e eternal life to those who obey perfectly. So Romans 2, 6 through 13 talks about that. The, the doers of the law will be justified. So this passage in Romans 5 talks about justification coming from Jesus. It's because he was a doer of the law, right? That Adam was not. He was the doer of the law. He came and obeyed the Father. He did what was right. We'll look a little bit later. He was judged as Adam was to be judged. Christ was judged and he was found righteous, right? So that's what justified means. It means being declared righteous. Uh, so he faced that judgment and he was declared righteous and justified. And that justification, we'll look at a little bit later how that happens, but that justification is passed uh, to believers. But that's where it comes from, is his perfect obedience. That's the foundation of that justification, that, that being declared righteous, because he was the doer of the law. First uh, Corinthians 15, so this is a, a long passage, um, but there's a lot here. Um, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from, uh, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Jesus, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. For the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a ton here in this passage. There's a lot there, but what I want to focus on is, is kind of three things. Um, one, the parallel again, just demonstrating the parallel between Adam and Christ. Christ came to accomplish what Adam failed to do, and, and to take us beyond um, the Garden of Eden like we talked about. Right? Adam was looking towards this eternal rest beyond his state in the garden. And that's what this passage refers to here, this, this glory that Christ accomplished, this, uh, this heavenly glory uh, of eternal rest and, and the transformation of, of his body into a spiritual body. <coughs> and so this was, was that eternal rest. And then how we participate in that. Right, so this refers to, we'll look at it a little bit later, um, the concept of, of new creation. Um, all these things being talked about here, this heavenly, when we, when we hear heaven, 
Uh, a lot of times we just, we just think this place in the sky and that's where we're, where we're gonna go and be forever. Um, the Bible paints a much more uh, fuller picture. It's not just somewhere up in the sky. That's kind of a temporary place until Christ returns. And uh, it's actually an entire new heavens and new earth. The whole world will, will be made new. It's an entirely new creation. And that's what this passage touches on is it's, um, uh, our bodies are not fit for that new creation. We need new bodies and we need new hearts. We need new souls. We need resurrected souls, I should say. Um, and so this all starts with Christ's resurrection from the dead. So he came, came to this world, he lived a perfect life, he was killed, and then he was judged. And God judged him to be righteous, and uh, because he was righteous, so I'm trying to find it, it's in Romans 1, I didn't write it down, um, He was uh, according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So his, his resurrection from the dead was a proclamation that he was the Son of God, that he was righteous. It was his, um, his justification, right? He was declared righteous in his resurrection. And, and this passage says that that's the first fruits of, of what we will experience, right? We experience that we will be resurrected um, because of, of what Christ has done. Um, so that's the basic idea. Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the new creational kingdom. Uh, the next section we'll look at, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of pushing through quick here. We can kind of catch our breath later if we need to. Um, the, the topic here is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as it's sometimes referred to. And as we read through, the, through these, um, what I would encourage you to keep in mind is the idea of well, what, what is the kingdom of God? Sometimes that's hard to define. But based on what we just looked at here and some of the other passages, we want to look at it in terms of the kingdom of God is the new creation. Right? That eternal state where there is no sin, uh, righteousness dwells, we will be with God. Uh, it's the Garden of Eden expanded throughout the entire newly created world. That, that is the kingdom of God. And then there's a sense in which that is, that is brought forward in time. Um, and this is what, what Jesus speaks of. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 17, he says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And Luke 22, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to, <coughs> excuse me, assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the, the words there, assign, are interesting. Um, the Greek there reflects the idea of covenanting. As my father has covenanted this kingdom to me. Right? This was something that um, we talked earlier about the, the mission and the commandments that, that Jesus was following from the father. This was one of the rewards held before him is this kingdom. Right? It's something that, that was covenanted to Jesus. If you perfectly obey and fulfill, um, this kingdom will be yours, this new creation kingdom. And, and he talks here about how um, it's, it's a little bit different. It's not going to be like, oh yeah, we can point over there, that's Japan, that's the kingdom of God, that's Europe. Um, it's uh, it's going to be in our midst. Right? This is a little bit different. John, uh, Jesus touches, that on, touches on that in John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered, me over, delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Again, that's just reiterating what we've talked about. It's not an earthly kingdom. 
It's not a, a kingdom of this age. And another way to say that, it's a kingdom of, of the age to come. Right? His kingdom is not of this world. And Psalm 2 talks about um, uh, Christ being established as king. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, the point there being that Christ is given dominion over all of the world. Right? He has a kingdom and, and is raised as king above. I'm probably going to skip over some of this here. You can read it a little bit later, but quickly, Revelation 1 says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, right? Dominion, that was something we heard from Adam. Right? He was to go forth and have dominion. Uh, that dominion that he relinquished to Satan is now given to Christ. Right? He has dominion. And he's made us a kingdom. Revelation 5, you can look at that later, that um, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Uh, Peter, what's that? Can I ask something? Yes, please. This verse, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, that kind of suggests that in that kingdom, there are still rebels that need an iron on their back to put them line. So how is, what that means? That's a good question, yeah. So th that particular one is, is talking about ultimately um, Christ returning to, so... Um, in, let's see which passage was it. Um, yeah, there's one we, we did before. It talked about, um, uh, and the, the final enemy is death. Was that for 1 Corinthians 15? So, um, uh, I'm trying to find that verse. Where was that? Thank you very much. So, earlier, a couple pages back on 2, 1 Corinthians 15. 25 says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So that's kind of what Psalm 2 is talking about there is that, that Christ is subduing his enemies. And so um, Satan, is, Satan is bound, uh, not yet fully destroyed and conquered. Um, and so that, that raises a good question that we'll get into a little bit here. There's this, this sense of what's referred to as uh, already and not yet of this kingdom of heaven, of this kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God, this new creation kingdom. Um, because of the work of Christ, there is a sense in which this has come already. Satan says the ruler of this world is cast out. Um, he says it's in your midst, but he says it's not of this world, and there's a sense in which it is still to come. Right? This work is not yet done. And death has not been fully conquered yet, but it will be. And so there's kind of this progressive unfolding and, and revealing of the kingdom. So enemies have been subdued in some sense, but not yet fully destroyed with the rod of iron as they will when he returns. Um, so Revelation kind of paints that picture. When he returns, Satan will be forever cast into the lake of fire and, and things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the end of First Peter there says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right, so this is an eternal kingdom that, that Christ was given as a reward for his obedience, and it is something that we will be able to enter into. 
Um, and so I'm going to jump through some of these a little bit. The next section is, is on the new covenant itself. So, so far we've been talking about what Christ came to do and, and the kingdom. And now we're, there's actually relatively few passages that explicitly talk about the new covenant. Um, but the implication is, is it touches on everything that we've talked about in all of these things. Um, I have a quick question. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit of a side thing, but when you sure. were talking about Jesus declared righteous, like through his resurrection, um, can you like speak into at all like the Apostles' Creed where he said that he descended <laughs> into hell for three days and then rose? Yeah. Is that part of that judgment and declaration? Um, it's a good question. There's there's different interpretations. Um, oh yes, thank you, thank you very much. So the question was um, uh, Jesus being declared righteous in his resurrection, being justified. How does that relate to in the Apostles' Creed? It's, it talks about um, Jesus descending into hell. Um, and so there's different interpretations there. Some some will interpret uh, well, he descended into hell as referring to well he he died and he was dead for three days and and then was resurrected. Um, others, I, th I think there's some compelling arguments, but um, others would say that uh, no, during that time, his spirit really did go into, into Hades or Sheol. And there's a whole, a whole, a whole rabbit trail there of, of um, this concept of Abraham's bosom where it wasn't just a place of punishment, but it was actually a place where, where the saints of old waited in a, in a place in Sheol and he came down and led them from there up to heaven. Um, so that's, that's another sense in which he descended into hell and, and brought them with him as he was declared righteous. So um, there's a lot there, but... Okay, so I, yeah. I was kind of curious if that was like not a figure of speech per se. Yeah, there, there's debate there basically. Okay. So part of, part of the partially subdued, like in his death, that's the already part that happened. But now we have to wait for his return for the not yet. In terms of uh, unpack that a little bit, like when he died, mm -hmm. he partially subdued Satan. Yes. Like yes. Fulfilled that part, but there's still more that has to. Yes. Happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so his his being declared righteous was uh, was basically um, the Father by the Spirit raising him from the dead. That itself was was the declaration. You are righteous. Um, that judgment there, and, and and then descending into hell would be something that kind of precipitates that a little bit. Um, so sort of related, but uh, not necessarily tied totally together. Um, but short answer is there's there's different interpretations on what exactly that means. One is more metaphorical, and then the other is no. He he really did go there and, and lead people out. And so I can send you some some stuff on that. That's that's interesting. Um, any other questions at this point? All right, sounds good. So just diving in quickly to establishing the new covenant. Um, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This, is, uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this new covenant is in the blood of Jesus. And then uh, Hebrews 8, uh, verses 8 through 13 says, For he finds fault with them. And this is, um, this is referring to Israel, so we won't get the full kind of context of this until later after we go through the old covenant and, and with, with Israel. But uh, it says, he for, for he finds fault with Israel when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed for, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, saying, uh, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the, the point here is that the new covenant includes 
all these great blessings. Right? It includes the Spirit. Uh, in the New Covenant, God is promising to give us the Spirit, to pour out the Spirit upon us. He is promising to be merciful towards our iniquities, forgive us of our sins, uh, justify us um, by the blood of Christ, Lord, and, um, and to sanctify us by that Spirit, uh, to make us willing and able to obey Him. We looked at that last week. Because of the curse, man is bound to sin and unable and unwilling to obey God and honor Him. And it is by the power of the New Covenant in Christ that that is broken and we are transformed and, and um, by the Spirit made willing and uh, able to obey. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of the next sections, but you can read this later. Um, these blessings of the New Covenant include you know, everything that we have in Christ. Um, justification. Right? Our, our justification now, uh, like I said, Christ was declared righteous and that was that was the judgment of the final day that was rendered to him in his death on the cross, right? So it was brought forward in time from, from the eschaton, as they call it, the end time. That final judgment was brought forward in time and rendered to Christ uh, in his death, and he was declared righteous. That was, um, and then when we are justified in Christ, the same thing happens, that final judgment of the end day is rendered here and now. That's why we can say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because that final verdict has been brought forward and rendered now. Um, and so that's, that's an aspect we want to keep in mind as we look at all these benefits. It's this idea of this new creation, um, the kingdom of the new creation. It's being brought forward in time and we're experiencing part of it, uh, part of the already. So our justification is an already aspect of this kingdom. Right, it's that final judgment brought forward in time and rendered here and now uh, in Christ. Uh, regeneration and sanctification. So we are, we are given a new heart. Um, uh, Ezekiel 36 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Um, and so there is a, a sense in which this is, uh, this is the beginning of the resurrection for us, right? We're given a new heart. We will later have a new body, but our new heart is, is the beginning of that resurrection for us. We are, we are currently uh, resurrected beings spiritually, right? Our, our hearts have been resurrected and given a new heart. Our bodies will follow later. But we can now um, love and honor and obey God because our uh, hearts have been regenerated. It is, it is uh, our hearts are a new creation. And so I encourage you to look over some of these other verses um, a little bit later. Um, well, let me read some of it, sorry. Romans 6, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of uh, obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Uh, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, the very faith that we have, right? We are, we are justified through faith alone, not by our works, you know, not by the obedience that Adam owed. Uh, we are justified, by the way, when it talks about being justified by faith alone, it's also not justified by the quality of my faith, the strength of my faith. I'm a good person because I have faith. It's not saying that. Uh, it's shorthand saying justified by Christ's obedience. Like we talked about he was a doer of the law. 
and it's received through simply believing that. And that very faith is also a gift of the new covenant. This talks about that in Ephesians 2 there, you can read. Um, so justification, a new heart, faith, sanctification, these are all gifts of the new covenant, adoption and preservation, um, as well as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in, in Hebrews 8. And then finally, resurrection and glorification. We saw that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So all of these things that we experience as blessings of Christ in our life here as Christians and in what we will experience to come, these are all benefits of um, the gifts of the new covenant. These are things that come to us by means of the new covenant. And so we'll touch a little bit more on what, what exactly does that mean? What is, what is the new covenant specifically? Has anybody ever heard of union with Christ, that term? What, uh, what does it mean to you, union with Christ? We are seen the same. What's that? We are, we are seen the same. Seen the same, okay. So from God's perspective, seen, seen the same. Okay, any other thoughts? We join with him in his death and his resurrection. We're united with him that way. Absolutely. <coughs> I always just think of, you know, when Paul says we are in Christ, mm -hmm. and so like it, it, it is almost as if there's a literal union that has happened. Like, so you know, putting all of that together, it's like, yeah, you are. When Jesus, when God sees you, He sees Christ because you are in Him. Mm -hmm. So there is there is some kind of of union, like you said. There's some some actual thing that unites us uh, to him or that, that is that union. So the New Testament refers to union with Christ with a variety of different phrases. Paul's language of in Christ, there's different variations of that, occurs more than 200 times, right? So it's not just when we see the phrase union, but all of that in Christ, I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, for example, Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, and then as, as you just mentioned, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I can't remember what, what um, what's the verse that talks about um, for I have died with Christ and the life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God ring a bell anyone thank you I was trying to find it this morning it was right in front of me all right <laughs> yeah that one <coughs> Second <laughs> um, Corinthians 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God now kind of bringing this down to a little more understandable level is Ephesians 5 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for, up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So it puts a little more uh, meat on the skeleton of the idea of union uh, by comparing it with a, a union we're, we're very familiar with, a marriage union. Um, it says a husband and wife become one flesh. What is What type of relationship is a marriage? Covenant. It's a covenant. So it is a very intimate relationship. The two become one flesh, but it's also a legal relationship. It's a covenant. And that legal relationship is the basis of the, of the more intimate relationship. And in a marriage, the husband and wife share all things together. Right? You share a house together, you share children together, you share food together, you share uh, bank accounts everything. together. Everything. Yeah. Uh, so when one of you has debt, the other has debt because, because all things are, are shared together. Uh, when one brings in money, the other benefits from that. So one takes on debt, the other, um, or, or the, the debt and the, the bounty are shared. And so that can help us to understand the nature of this union with Christ. Paul says it's, it's compared to, uh, to marriage here. And so that's, that's the basis of what's called the great exchange. Right? So the great exchange is not merely that uh, on the cross Christ has taken my guilt, uh, taken my sin and borne it on the cross and paid for it. He takes that, but I also get from him his righteousness, his righteous declaration. Uh, he was justified and declared righteous, and now that becomes mine. All right? Because in the same way that a bank account is shared, uh, we share in Christ's righteousness and he shares in our sin. And th those things come together. Um, it's how we are given entrance into this eternal kingdom is through this, uh, this marriage union. Right? And the point I'm bringing up, uh, point of bringing it up here is that that's what the new covenant is. The new covenant is our marriage union with Christ. It's how we become one with him. And then all of those benefits then flow from that union. So when we are brought out of Adam, right? so everyone by birth is in Adam, when we are brought out of that and brought into the new covenant, we are united to Christ and all that's his becomes ours. And he takes our sin. Yeah, there's like that we've been given everything that the firstborn of, of God has been given. Yes. And that has been bestowed upon us then. And so, therefore, all that is God's is ours. Um, I mean, even harkening back to, like, the, the prodigal son, you know, the older son's like, why didn't you do this for me? He's like, you've had it the whole time. It's yours because it's mine. Mm -hmm. and, and so, like, I, I love that idea as well. Um, I think it drives home both sides, especially for those like, you know, for those who haven't been married, you know. Yes, absolutely. There's there's so many metaphors. Yeah, it yes. Really helps drive that home, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, reason I emphasize the marriage one here is just I think it it a lot of times you don't connect those dots, the new covenant mm -hmm. and, and marriage, yep. and it's it's well, it is that marriage is a covenant, and it is that is what the new covenant is. But there are, like you said, there's there's so many metaphors and analogies. Um, to elaborate upon our union with Christ and all that we have in Him, right? We are sons of God, um, inheritors through through Christ. Uh, we have all these things through union with Christ. That's um, that's our great hope, is that uh, we we get um, Him and all that He earned uh, through union with Him. Um, the last section here is is. Uh, the new creation. So kind of summarizing everything that we, we've talked about with all these benefits here, 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Uh, so I've got a longer note here. The Bible presents the gospel in the kingdom of God as an inaugur inaugurated eschatology. Right? So eschatology refers to the end times. And sometimes we just think of that as like, oh, you know, the, the last final days before Jesus comes back. But it's actually beyond that. Uh, it's really the age to come. This eternal life, this eternal rest, this new creation. So, so eschatology refers to, um, to that. And it's been inaugurated now. That, that final eternal state has been inaugurated now. The judgment that everyone awaits at the end of the world was rendered upon Christ after his death, upon his resurrection. That eschatological judgment is rendered now for all those who are in Christ. And that eschatological rest that awaited Adam, that Christ secured, that new heavens and new earth is poured out, uh, uh, poured out upon us in stages. All the blessings of Christ are new creation blessings. The kingdom of God is the new heavens and the new earth. So it's, it, it, is, uh, it comes to us in a staggered manner. We are justified. We are given a new heart. We are given by the Spirit and the new heart power to overcome sin, but not completely. We still have the old man. We still have the flesh that we battle with. And so throughout that life, it's, that's progressive. We grow in that. We grow in that and won't be made perfect uh, until we die. Our souls are made perfect and we won't have the, the resurrected bodies until Christ returns in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's, it's a staggered fulfillment or deployment of this new creation kingdom. Romans 1, 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, we don't have to wait for the final judgment because it has been rendered in Christ on our behalf already. 2 Peter 3 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, the lives, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then the last one I want us to look at um, is, if you want to open your Bibles, Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water. Um, uh, from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven lamp, uh, last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his, with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh uh, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase. The eleventh jacinth, the twelve amethyst, and the twelve gates were the twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory in, in, into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be, will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will uh, need, no, need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So we, we can uh, pause there. Anybody know why I wanted to, to read that in such length? That's the final destination. That's the final destination, absolutely. Any other reasons? Based on last week? There are a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of things going on here that that are reminiscent of what we saw in the Garden of Eden. Bring up the tree of life again. Yeah, the tree of life, uh, all the rare jewels, uh, the rivers flowing out of them. Um, absolutely. So this is this is very much echoing the Garden of Eden. And what I would argue is this paints a picture of what we talked about, what what Adam was working towards, that rest, that eternal state of rest. Um, this is the glorified garden that is now all of creation. It's not just a little, little section that needs guarding because it can be lost. It is now um, all of creation where we will dwell with resurrected bodies, with Christ in his resurrected body sitting on his throne, um, with God in eternity forever. It will truly be eternal life because it can't be lost. It's not a state we'll, we will be able to fall from. It is irreversible. Um, perfected souls, uh, glorified bodies, uh, worshiping God uh, forever and ever. And so this is, this is the kingdom of God that uh, those who have faith in Christ begin to experience uh, as resurrected beings now, as, as part of that, uh, the, the new creation. So um, that, was, that was a lot. We kind of went through a lot. So Sure. You know, in the beginning we had the Garden of Eden and openness, 
and now we have walls and gates to keep things anything impure out. So it's just in in the imagery here. Yeah, so I, th I think a couple things. One was last week we talked about um, there actually were um, boundaries kind of with the garden there, and, and part of Adam's task was to guard and protect that. Um, so there was a sense of, of um, <coughs> danger in, in the garden. And then here I think we want to keep in mind that um, th this is poetic imagery. And it's, it's largely pulling from, we'll look at it later, so we'll come back to this at the end of the, of the class, um, it's largely pulling from the imagery of Israel and its temple. Um, so it had gates and walls and things like that, um, but it's, it's using, it's, it's not so much talking about, oh, there's going to be this, this stone building with these stone walls. It's, um, it's trying, to, trying to give us a sense of what that new creation is going to be like by pointing back to something that we do know, the, the temple of, uh, of Israel. And so it's going to be kind of like that but it's also going to be totally different, right? It talks about it being a perfect square, and it comes down and it fills the whole, the whole world. Um, there's a lot of aspects of this that just don't, don't quite match physics, you know? It's, so it's, it's, I would say the, the walls and things like that are, are, are imagery. Um, at this point in the new creation, there will be no more sin. Uh, sin has been cast into the lake of fire, um, and in this new creation, um, that, that's, that's the whole point of the new creation, is that um, sin cannot dwell there, and we, uh, the, the new creation is able to exist because Christ came and conquered and, and had dominion that Adam failed to, to bring creation into that state. Christ brought him in. Um, but yeah, this was kind of a, a rush trip through some aspects of the new covenant. We'll come back and look at it again later. But um, I just wanted to highlight again the contrast and parallels between Adam and Christ uh, between the Garden of Eden and the new creation and uh, to get that kind of a big picture in our minds here before we get into some of the details of, of the other covenants in the weeks to come. Um, but do you guys have any, any questions, any thoughts that come to mind from what we've looked at today? Is there readings for next week? Um, yes, thank you. Go ahead and read Genesis 6 through 9. Yeah, I think that should, um, yeah, six through nine would be great. Alrighty, well, thank you guys for being here.